stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Uh, my name is Dan, and uh, Jamie and Patrick couldn't be here today, so I'm on my own. But uh, I am here interviewing Gary Willoughby, who is uh, kind of along the lines of Paul Salmon, one of the most famous Blade Runner fans, and he's been around a long time since uh, before the movie even came out. And uh, he's got a long, long history of... Um, helping manage and admin the blade zone blade zone uh, website which uh, you know in in the early 90s was kind of the first big uh, get together for blade runner fans which I'll, I'll let gary talk more about that but uh yeah gary was kind enough to invite me into his home in la and i'm very happy to be here and he's got an amazing blade runner collection which apparently is only a small part of it uh <laughs> but um yeah gary's met a lot of amazing people and interviewed uh many people who are now gone and and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that and and uh but yeah our, our purpose today is to just kind of talk about the beginnings of blade runner fandom as as part of our 700 layer cake series and um so yeah i'll kick it off to gary but uh first gary if you want to just you know introduce yourself to the fans and uh, just give us a brief background on you know how you got into film how you got into blade runner um and and just how you entered this world well uh, yeah my name's gary and uh i uh was a a long collector i've collected for most of my life different things whether it's comic books or radios japanese radios so i had sold my japanese radio collection so i needed something to collect and i had um seen um Blade Runner, and I was trying to find something that I could start collecting, um, and only only posters at that time. There was no toys since Blade Runner was an R-rated film. Um, they didn't have any toys or any merchandise to to sell the uh, the people, the fans that loved um, Blade Runner. So I started collecting um, posters. I went up to Hollywood Book and Poster, which is pretty famous for their photographs and slides of every movie that you can imagine. And they had posters up there, so I started collecting posters. And uh, then around 1999, I I bought a computer and on the computer, I uh, searched Blade Runner and stumbled upon various websites that were up at, at the time. And Blade Zone seemed to be the one that had the most content. And if you, there was a link where you could ask 
the people that were working at Blade Zone questions. So I became one of the, you know, the people that was always bugging them about different questions and stuff. This is way before the Sam, I bought the Salmon book, or I don't even know right. when, sure. when, it, when it came out. But I just wanted to know all of these different, different questions. So eventually... I and, guess and this he, was uh, this is Gary Kissel that started. Yeah, Blades Gary okay. Gary Kissel. So you guys had, developed a relationship, right? Probably, I imagine he uh, he had started the uh, the uh, blade blade zone. It was a it was another name. If you go to Blade Zone Facebook page, he's written a really nice background mm-hmm. of uh, how Blade Zone started and what the name was before. Um, so I was such a pain in his uh, behind, probably. He asked me <laughs> to start writing um, articles, and I told him I couldn't write. And he said, well, maybe you could like start interviewing people and then, and then write up whatever. Because by profession and in teaching, you're an artist. You're I'm an artist. So I'm all right. I'm right brain. So right. I have no... <laughs> I'm really... So... Gary's being modest now. We'll get into it later, but he's written some great interviews with with, uh, famous Blade Runner-related people. So, let's see. So, Gary was kind enough to bring me on board. And at the time, there was probably seven people also working at Blade Zone writing writing articles. And so, I had to find my niche, you know. If people are writing about this, you know, this and that, what... What uh, what could I, you know, contribute to, to Blade Zone? So I kind of decided that I would try to interview the cast and crew, which is something to bite off, you know, because I'm. It was, you know, a while later, and a lot of people just move on and they really don't care. It was just a. And it's it a lot of work tracking people down, finding their contact info, agents, and all that stuff. How, yes. How do you, and I'm, you know, when you're just a teacher, how do you ask the manager or the agent? How do you agent, get an in? Yeah, we run into how the same do you, problem. They're, they're going to say, what studio do you, are you affiliated with? And you go, oh, so either you lie or something. <laughs> That's how I got Linda DeSena's. I shouldn't tell her that. <laughs> I got. I went through her agent. I found that was listed. It was listed her agent. So I think I called that, or I called some agency, and and you made up an a, you made up an alias. I they gave me they gave me her home phone number. Wow. And she was in to divulge, go off a little bit onto another path. Oh, and real she, quick, because I only learned this recently, she was a set designer for. Blade she Runner. yes, she was the set decorator. Right. With at the time there was three, and then there were problems with the other two people, so she became the only, only set decorator. Mm-hmm. So, she of course didn't have any idea who I was or anything, but she was very, very, um, very nice. And I told her I was recording and I have questions for her. And so her interview is, is on uh, Blade Zone too. And it's, right. it's pretty insightful, you know, very, very insightful of what, how hard everybody worked right, sure. on, on, on Blade Zone. Yeah. 
everybody was under the gun, you know. Ridley wanted three times more of whatever it was. Well, that's great. I think we're going to get back to Blade Zone and we're going to get back to some of your interviews, but I just wanted to kind of introduce you to the fans so they knew, you know, what we were talking about and who you were and what your background was. So let's kind of step back to the beginning. This is something that we, you know, in one form or another, we always tend to ask people that we're interviewing, but um, especially if you were alive and, and an adult at, in 1982, it's always great because I wasn't. Um, so what was your first experience seeing Blade Runner, which I'm assuming you saw it when it was in theaters? And, you know, tell us about your initial impression. I've always loved detective films. So when I, when I heard that there was going to be a, a movie that was set in the future that was basically a detective film or a film noir um, my one of my favorite ideas. I was one of the first people to even see uh, Forbidden Planet in my hometown. I love I love those old '50s style science fiction, and then you you couple the science fiction with the detective films, and you have Blade Runner. So I um, love Blade Runner the first time I, I saw it. Even though it was kind of hard to follow, it mm-hmm. was like a little choppy. And of course, this is the original theatrical this is, cut yes, with this the voice is 19, over and 1982 right. in a theater. And one of the things that struck me, of course, is it struck everybody was there was five replicants that escaped from <laughs> off-world and there ended up only being four, and of course they had cut Mary out of the out of the uh, script or the the filming. I guess they didn't have enough money or something. So that you know that was something. I wa- one of the questions, of course, I asked you know Blade Zone at the time. Why does it say that? So. Thankfully, they solved a lot of those. You were you were digging into like the continuity and script right. errors. It, yeah, things just were not adding up, and so as I said, it was it was something to sink my teeth into, and so this is before almost before computers. The next year, Dan. The next year. The v- the VHS tape came out. Right. I think it was like in what would that be? That would be eighty three mm-hmm. something. The year like I was that. born. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of saved the whole thing as well because the original came out. I had an RCA VHS player that cost a thousand dollars at that time. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Some to some and, of them were 2000, I think. Oh, were they? It was, you know, you go. Yeah. In 1983? Yeah. Money. That's I crazy. have no idea how much money that is. I can, is I can tell you in a second, but yeah. So I was able to watch it over and over and pause it. But of course, you still can't see details of uh, whatever it is, you know, like the ID card or whatever it is. So I think I agree with Sid Mead that said, I think Sid said this, 
that it was the VCR that saved Blade Runner. Because if it was just in theaters and then it disappeared, you know, there's not going to be much life to right, because we film we've read and talked about endlessly with everyone about the critical reception and and the public's reception. And, and speaking to that, do you remember? Was it like a Friday night when you went to see it? Was it opening weekend? Was the theater full or not? Because we've we've heard from so many people of like, yeah, you know, I was the only one there, or it was like half empty. It was, I think. I mean, as everybody knows, I have a really bad memory, but I think it was like in June, so it was a nice warm day here in Los Angeles and I think if I recall that the, the the theater was actually very full okay and it had a really good reception oh so you felt the crowd enjoyed yeah it, it they did even though it was still confusing I'm sure people were walking out going what did I just what did I just see because I think the continuity was a, a little bit off but the action and everything was really good I looked at Blade Runner in a very surface level that in in the past I've seen you know from cowboy movies to detective movies that there's a bad guy and then there's the detective or the good guy well I considered the replicants as these evil you know outlaw kind of people that were killing all these people and what watching the the video over and over again I started feeling more empathy towards the replicants which is kind of a weird you know normally people don't change their minds much unless they really see a lot of evidence you know and so that was what was happening to me the more I even watched it in that particular version I started more or less looking at the at the replicants as the people that you know that you have empathy sure empathy for kind of flips things on just its head. Yeah, yeah just as as opposed to having empathy for the humans I was starting to see that the replicants were actually kinder in, in a way. They were just trying to save their own lives. And it was the police force that was, you know, like... Yeah, you were starting to see the, the humanity of the, the humanity, replicants, even though they weren't human. Yeah, it was just the reverse of what I thought. There was humanity in the replicants and not so much humanity maybe in the, in the, in the humans. modified stay had in mind something a little more radical what what seems to be the problem death death well I'm afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction you I want more life father 
Um, at, at this time, were you familiar with Philip Dick's work and had you read Androids before you saw the film? I'm just curious. No, okay. I, I wasn't. Although that said, when I was in junior high and high school, I read uh, mostly science fiction. I, maybe it's because it was easier to read um, in high school and junior high. Okay. When we had to write a book report, it was always about, you know, like um, iRobot or sure, something Asimov, like that. Uh, yeah, Asma. So, but I, I wasn't um, familiar with Phil, Philip K. Dick's work. And so you don't even remember if you may have run into some of his short stories. Because he was very prolific, so sometimes it's like you could end up reading something of his and not remember That's that true. it was him. That's true. I, you know, and I didn't put two and two sure. together. Kind well, of well what about, because um, we just did an episode. In fact, the opening of this series was our very first episode on the Androids book. And we talk about that and the kind of, you know, we compare it to the film. But um, I'm assuming that you have read the novel at this point. I've I've read it several times. Sure, talk about that a little bit. Kind of your first impressions and how you felt, because that was my experience as well. I saw the movie first, then I read the novel. So I'm curious to hear as, how you felt. As you read it, of course, um, Deckard is a, is a is a human, and he's he's married, and there's all sorts of wonderful things in the book that didn't get into 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 Blade Runner. Um, but I, en I enjoyed it. I enjoyed him trying to buy, you know, a pet and, and all of, and all of that. I, I really liked that. And that, that empathy argument that you so eloquently brought up, um, that comes up all the time is very different in the novel, right? I mean, the novel kind of does make you sort of, uh, empathize a little bit more with Deckard and his wife and less with the replicants. Right. You know, they kill the spider and it seems like they're, they're like, Oh, they're these, they're these murderers and stuff. And, and mm -hmm. it's interesting how the film really turned that around. It's yeah. It's, you know, the, the writing and, and, and Ridley Scott, it's, um, I like his take on it. It's different. It's different than, than the, uh, the book, but I really enjoy, I have all sorts of, um, since I collect, I collect, you know, do Androids dream. I, every one that I see, I buy that. I, I was just on the internet today cause I don't actually own a copy of it. Yeah. I've read it, but I don't own a copy. I, I own the boom comics, which we've talked about. If you haven't seen those, those are incredible. Um, I, I won't talk about it too much cause we just did in our episode, but yeah, I was online looking for a copy of Androids and kind of looking at the different exterior styles and I was like ooh this is a nice leather one that's bound with like a couple of cool sheep sort of uh, those inset designs in leather where they then do like gold foil and you know it's like $600 yeah. $1000 I was like oh, okay <laughs> sadly I just bought like paperbacks and sure. stuff. every time there's a it was a different cover I would buy a different different one if you if you look at the uh, on the uh, final cut the the uh, expanded version with all of the different DVDs. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the one of the shots that is out of context after my um, interview is uh, a large eight by uh, four by eight table that has magazines and uh, books on it. All oh, about cool. all about um, Blade Runner, right? 
that is my studio and I laid them all out. Oh, so nice. when Charles came over, they they could see that I've like collected all of these. So let's talk about books. that for a second. We'll be jumping around, but we'll we'll, we'll make something cohesive out of this. Um, so we, we had a long conversation the other day when we set up this interview and you were telling me that um, you spent a lot of time and sat down with uh, Charles de la Zarica and were uh, initially interviewed for Dangerous Days. Now, it's been a little bit, maybe a year since I've seen it and I've seen it several times, but um, I don't remember seeing you in the documentary. I was I was wondering, hey, could you tell us a little bit of the story of participating in that, which I think is funny and great. Um, but also, like, did you actually end up in it? And are there interviews in there? So tell us about that. Believe it or not, in one, one of the discs, it's about fandom. Oh, okay. And Perfect. so Charles invited Brian Ebenhock, who's a really close friend of mine, and I to represent all of fandom. All of Blade Runner fandom. All of fandom. Wow. Can you imagine that? I, I can. Yeah. <laughs> so... Brian was staying, he, f he lives in Orlando. He came, and so this he is was staying at my studio. 2005 or six, kind of before yeah. that came out? Because it came yeah. out in 2007? Okay. It was, you know, it, it's, it's real, it's right at the very end. You know, when they, when Charles was going around to Paul Salmon and, and Joanna Cassidy and all this, it was in that same time frame. I got a phone call, and, and I'm sure Brian, I never talked to Brian about how this all happened, but Brian was staying overnight with me, and so they came in with the whole crew and the sound man. And, and so all of a sudden you found yourself right, put on chair, camera. In a chair, and Charles was asking me all these questions, and my mind just, I'm not good at interviews, so my mind just went blank. <laughs> and he was, I was like freaking out mentally and he was looking at me off camera and I was just like, it was, I was saying, I say, uh, a lot. And so my whole interview probably was, was, uh, so he was able to chop up the interview. So he I salvaged didn't look it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't look like this total nitwit. And of course then Brian sits down. Brian is a really smart guy. He sits, he sits down, he just nails, nails everything, right? He's, 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 he's great. <laughs> so we are in there. What was amazing is the care that Charles took. He wanted things to look like film noir, so he wanted lighting to come in through, you know, blinds. Oh, cool. and yeah, he's great. The, back, the background, he wanted it to shimmer or something. It, it was amazing. Instead of just coming in and having a dry so then there was actually he said well show me some of your collection so i walked back and there's probably there's probably photographs out on the internet of me showing charles all the blasters that i'd collected at, at that at that time in their little plastic boxes and then we went over and looked at the table that i had set up with all the all the books you know there are so many books just written about blade runner and its effect and the psychology of blade runner yeah i've got a table full of them at my house that's yeah. that's my one pile of things i collect is books about blade runner what i didn't know was that there were um college classes just in blade runner and the psychology of blade runner i i never knew that so the other night I went on um, Google 
on the internet and looked up Blade Runner classes, and sure enough, all these colleges started popping up. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tim Shanahan, who I told you about, and we've interviewed, and, and uh, you know, I'll point you towards our interview with him, who teaches philosophy uh, in several different classes at Loyola Marymount. Um, I don't know if he ever did a Blade Runner only class, but he definitely talks about it when he brings up other films. They, they, you know, he, they watch it in his class and he's like, it's tough because these kids, you know, they're bored, but it's like, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I can see, I, I certainly would take that class. They had to, the class had to write papers. Mm-hmm. They, they watched it and then they had to write a paper and he, um, on, uh, on Google, it had a list of all the questions, the test questions. You know, what about this? What about this? So it was, it was really interesting. Did you ever go to one or did you just read no. about them? Because no. you could have just walked in there and aced that class. <laughs> aced the class. <laughs> it just wouldn't have been fair. All oh, right. It you would have screwed fair. up the whole curve for everybody would, else. Yeah. yeah. Why did he get 100%? <laughs> it, it's funny. Um, today I was uh, buying uh, a little bit of the audio equipment for today since Jamie can't be here and he has some of it. And uh, walking out of the guitar center where I was buying microphones, the, the door guy goes, oh, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? You filming, you recording? I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm recording for a podcast. And he, he was kind of curious. So he goes, what, what podcast is for? I said, uh, you know, it's, uh, I didn't even say the name of the podcast. I said, it's the only Blade Runner podcast. It's about the films. And, and his face turned kind of sour, you know? And he, he goes, oh, yeah, I remember. I saw that in theaters when it came. He was in his 50s probably. And he goes, I remember seeing that in theaters here where it, when it came out. And kind of that's all he said, but I could tell he wanted to talk and I was on my way out, but I figured I'd give him a couple minutes and I was like, okay, what'd you think? Oh man, I hated it. It was such a pile of garbage. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, it's not for everyone. I could understand. And he's like, you know, just there's so many continuity problems with the script and this and that and blah, blah, blah. He said, visually it was amazing. He said it was a beautiful film. And I said, well, you know, have you watched the final? He's like, yeah, I've watched every version. I said, you know, they fixed a lot of it in the final cut. He goes, yeah, I don't know. He's kind of skeptical. You know, I was like, oh, you know. I have a good one. <laughs> he there's there's a lot of people that haven't seen the final cut, so they saw the original 1982 version, and it kind of turned them off. Sure. I also understand the uh, problem with um, the uh, female audience, mm-hmm. where Deckard is only it seems like he's only killing women yeah, by killing or assaulting women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is, I can see why there's not that many um, female fans. Yeah, well, I mean, we've talked about that on on the show. I mean, it's uh, it's it's again something that's dark and mysterious and not for everyone. Um, you know, in our discussions, our our conclusion has always been because you know, we did a whole episode on the love and hate scene with Rachel because, you know, especially nowadays where these things are being talked yeah, about more and sort of, yeah. you know, Me Too movement yeah. and and these things are being exposed in Hollywood, and you know when I'm showing a girl from my generation the film for the first time because she's never seen it and you know i'll, I'll use the final cut because it's like i'm not going to walk them through you know uh voiceovers and all this stuff it's like if you if you only get one shot to present the movie that's really the best version right and you know i always have to think about that you know i have to kind of warn them like hey there's kind of a you know sexually violent scene in this and, and you know we'll talk about it but you know the way we've always looked at it is this is not promoting or condoning that kind of behavior it's just that Deckard's kind of a shitty guy and a shitty yeah. character, you know? And so it's, he is. It, it, it fits the story that he would do something like that. It's more complex. And again, there's, you know, there's tons of room for discussion on that, but um, no, that's kind of, kind of how we, we've always felt about it. 
but um, I just, you know, I just kind of put it out of one of those things where I just kind of put it out of my mind. Yeah, well, not, I mean, people avoid not, it. People do I, avoid it. It's not my favorite thing, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, I just, you just move on to the, to the next scene. And stuff. Right, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's certainly not, not people's favorite scene, but, um, you know, I think it, there's good conversation to be had there. And that's why we, you know, we have brought it, it up is. in certain it Because, you know, just to be honest, those kind of things happen. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. And, uh, so it's, you know, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's a film. I remember, you know, talk, I don't know if it was Stephen Dane or who it was, but I was going on and on about, Blade Runner and he goes Gary it's just a movie and I'm going no 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 it's not, no, just, it's not a movie. just a movie it's so deep <laughs> it has all these layers and you look at it and it's just yeah so actors and the cast and crew look at film you know it's hard for me to put myself in the place of the cast and crew because they went through hell in a lot of oh this, yeah especially this film, film. I yeah. think uh, you it know. seems like everybody went through because it was such an intense time and it was all shot at night it's like it's a all, war yeah man. yeah it was exactly it was like it was like a war you survived I think there was even a t-shirt I survived or maybe it was a and so you know there was I'm sure there was camaraderie among the cast and crew. Well, and, and I think for many of them, whether they realized it immediately or after a few years, they realized it as an actor or really as anybody in production, it's not every day you get to participate in something so monumental. And so once you realize it's monumental, I feel like the downsides of filming with Ridley, who's a perfectionist and does a million takes and it's night and it's, and it's you know cold and terrible and rainy, I'll bet that dissipates pretty quickly when you go, oh, wow, I was a part of a masterpiece that's going down in the history of film and, and seminal science fiction. And, you know, all these things we talk about all the time. And it's like, what an incredible opportunity. I think, you know, I mean, you've interviewed and we'll talk a little bit about your interviews, but we've interviewed, you've interviewed so many people in the production that I, I'm sure that must be a resonating thing with them about how amazing it was to be involved. Time heals mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And with life, just like some of your probably, uh, relationship with any human being if you have a negative part of that relationship um, they they the negative parts seem to fade fade away and I personally seem to only remember the really good parts of every thing you know a relationship or a film or something I, I always arguably remember. we could say that's one of the better parts of human nature you know right the brain <laughs> the brain kind of goes oh yeah that was really a cool time mm -hmm. and you go didn't you remember we fall down in the mud and we right. were cold and the, the good you know, old days the, yeah the good old days you know just like when I think about uh, the armed services I was in the air force so you think oh this and that and you go oh that was that was kind of cool you think back on it, you know, and then you have camaraderie with other 
branches of the service, you know. But at the time, you're just going, this is, this is not good. This is not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and you know, not, not to get completely off subject, uh, but, you know, Gary and I had a phone call the other day, and we were on the phone for two and a half hours. And, you know, the initial part of that was us talking about our military service and our connection as veterans. And, and I thought that was really powerful. And, and, you know, I didn't actually get to say it just because I forgot. But thank you for your service, because I do like to say that. Um, but yeah, Gary was in the Air Force uh, during the Vietnam era, and he was he he didn't go to Vietnam, but was stationed in Okinawa uh, as a medic. And so he was telling me about his experiences, which again are not Blade Runner related, but it still helped us connect. And so I was like, okay, we got to sit down and talk. Um, let's go back to Ridley just for a second, because I know there's some fun anecdotes there. Um, the same way I asked you, you know, we wanted to talk about whether you'd read the the book. Um, whether you were super familiar with Ridley Scott's work, which at the time he wasn't crazy famous yet, but in 1979, he had made a famous film. You want to tell us a little bit about your experience uh, watching Alien for the first time in theaters? Because that was a good oh, story. Oh, yeah. That's, that, <laughs> I'm glad I mentioned that to you the other, the other day because I would, have never, I would have never said anything about it. Um, and was that the first Ridley Scott film you remember seeing? That was the first... Other than probably I saw the Apple commercial, but I probably didn't know who directed sure. the app, the famous. Because the, the Duelist was before Alien, right? I think I saw the Duelist, okay. too. I don't think I've actually seen but it. I need to go back and see it. To be honest, I'm, until, until Blade Runner, I really didn't pay any attention to who directed what. Right, yeah. It no, was I... always just the content of the film sure. that I was watching. Unless you talk about Fellini and then I could talk to you about hours about Fellini. Right. But um, so first day aliens out. Nineteen seventy nine. Nineteen seventy nine. Go with my girlfriend. We wait in line. We go in. We're watching the film and then it's really a sc scary film. And when the chest burster comes through, of course, everybody in this, well, not everybody, maybe, a lot of people screamed. And it scared, it scared me so bad, I put my hands to my face and I wear glasses and I had plastic lens glasses and I broke one of the lenses in half on my glasses. So I always say that was the most expensive movie I've ever. It cost me $75 to have that lens replaced. <laughs> and you had to watch the rest and of the I film. And I had to with... watch the film without my glasses. So I've seen it since then. And it's just as scary. But it was, it was the most intense film, I think. Uh, all the way through. the You know, we always talk, when we talk about films, Dan, we talk about pacing. And pacing is very, very important. If you've got the audience by the throat, you don't want to let them go and then go into another room or, you know, it, take, the, take the tension down too much. You want to keep them right there. And that's what, that's what Alien did. And it was, it, was quite, it was quite an experience, I'm telling you. It was... Yeah. And so, I love that story. To tie, the guys may have to use that on their alien podcast. Just it's so great. So to tie it back into Blade Runner, by the time you went to theaters to see Blade Runner, 
Did you realize that it was Ridley Scott? Did you make a connection that it was the director of Alien at all or not yet? I, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I might, of course, have seen his, his name mm-hmm. um, on a newspaper. It's a piece of paper that was printed and sold for, <laughs> sold for t- 10 cents. I think they're cents. still around. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Barely, but they're hanging on. So you would open up the newspaper and there was a whole section in there about, you know, about the theaters. And so you would pick the theater and blah, blah, blah. But, um, Yeah, because it does make me think uh, without, even if you didn't realize the director, especially later as the deleted scenes came out makes me think of obviously Ridley's style his attention to detail but uh you know and i think there are some sort of wishful thinking connections between the universe of blade runner and alien where a lot of fans kind of want to find out these easter eggs and secrets where it's like the films are connected you know and and really i think even Ridley's come out and said, okay, there's no direct relation, but sure, it could be happening in the same universe, but you know, they're not directly related. But I think one thing that uh, I noticed in the deleted scenes that really gave me that feel was the design of the med pod room that Holden is in. When After Holden is shot and he's in convalescence and him and um, Harrison Ford or him and Deckard are having the conversation, I just felt, man, when I look at the walls and the med pod itself, I was like, this could be a back room on the Nostromo. I mean, I really felt like that same visual style. It was all white Mm -hmm. and it was not like anything outside on the street. It wasn't like Sebastian's apartment. It wasn't like Deckard's apartment. Right. It was, that's a good point. It was pure white spotless. So it could have been in that in that universe, right? It Almost was, like it's it was in the wrong movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes the, sense why they the, pulled it, right? It was in the wrong movie. It was just so so perfect and so so white. Yeah, we uh, we're actually so we're interviewing Charlie uh, again soon, and specifically we asked him we wanted to talk about the deleted scenes because he went through boxes about you know rolls and rolls of film. And out of, he said it was like 900 something boxes, um, you know, the, the 45 minutes of deleted alternate scenes that are on the collector's edition is just the highlights. Like that's what he selected that thought made a cool sort of highlight reel chronologically through the film. But it's like, you know, I know most fans are like, just release all, you know, 10,000 hours of whatever it is. Cause we want to see all of it. But, um, I think you, you can watch that scene and kind of understand why it was edited out of the film, uh, even uh, and well and again I want to talk about your interview with Morgan Paul before he passed in 2012. But um, even the way Morgan Paul talks in that scene, it's like it's two 40s or 50s. You know, it's like you know he uses the term tit job at one point I think for talking about Rachel and 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 I can't remember the other lines right now. Again, we'll we'll break it down in more detail in another episode. But you can see how sort of the pacing and setting and even the the writing is just off for the rest of the film. So I can totally understand. That's the thing about right. I think when you work with people like uh, Ridley, even what ends up on the cutting room floor is like amazing. You feel bad wasting it, but it was um, as you said, it was. The pacing was just wrong. The script was just wrong. Of course, Morgan wasn't making up his dialogue. That was what you know. That was what Morgan pr- prides himself or prided himself in. 
was to get everything everything exactly correct. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good segue. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Morgan Paul because, uh, you know, in our conversation, uh, you were kind of telling me about um, how you reached out to him as part of, you know, you taking the mantle for Blade Zone of trying to get interviews and how, you know, you guys ended up really developing a friendship and talking a lot on the phone. And, um, of course, uh, your... We'll put show notes uh, later in the podcast so that people can look at links. And so I'll link um, your interview with Morgan Paul from, I imagine, maybe 2007 or something like that. Do you remember the year? No, I, I don't remember. Okay, but in the 2000s, right? Again, he mm-hmm. passed in 2012, and I imagine it was several years before mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, the, actually, the easiest place I found it was on his website. It's on his main page. I see. On his website, yeah. on the main page, is your interview with him, which goes to show how and, much him and his family. And the, and the shift interview is probably on there as well. Uh, well, at, you end your interview with Morgan Paul saying something about his voyage and then saying, but that's for another interview. So I didn't realize that that interview is around too I long think to so. find it. Gary Kissel was very nice, and he and I worked on that because. Morgan didn't have a place where you could go. Sadly, he passed away before I could get some more photos. Those were the only ones that I had at the time. And Morgan said, well, deal with, there's some movies that I didn't have photographs of him in. Basically, it's it's a all Morgan Paul thing and it goes through all of his, his uh, film career. Yeah, which I was reading up on. So um, I think he was in something like a dozen and a half films before Blade Runner. Uh, most famously, Patton. He played, uh, I think, a captain. I tried to pull up some YouTube clips so I could watch those clips specifically. I've seen Patton before, but it's been a while, and I couldn't. So I'm just going to have to find the film and rewatch it. But that's probably the biggest film he was ever in before Blade Runner. That's his. Fir- I think that's one of his first films. Yeah, which is crazy because, you know, George C. Scott, that's a big deal. Um, but yeah, uh, tell us the story. Tell us a little bit about how you got to know Morgan Paul and how you ended up interviewing him at his house in way, way up there in, uh, what was the name of the place? It was Lake Arrowhead. Right. So tell us the beginnings of that because this is a good story. And we don't know that much about him. So of course, for anyone who's new to the Blade Runner world, Morgan Paul plays Dave Holden, who's shot at the beginning of the film. Morgan was not originally, if you've read the Paul Salmon book, or not originally cast for for the film he was brought in to substitute for Harrison Ford in scenes so they were they were doing tests I guess that's the word tests with various um, actresses various people uh, for for the parts and instead of Harrison Ford I think this is a common common practice to yes, bring in some screen tests I think they right call. screen test exactly so there's actually they were actually filmed and on the I think yeah they're the, on the they're on the collectors oh they you, are? you can find okay. them on some of the again if you're lucky enough to own that because they stopped printing it you can find it but it's expensive oh I see um, but yes the, the, you can see um, oh man help me with the uh, name of the actress that they that Michael Dealey wanted for Rachel and then didn't end up working out, but she has a really nice uh, screen test. I, I can't remember. Her I'll name look her up. Name. I can't remember her name right now either. Uh, yeah. Was it Nina Axelrod? Yes, that's, an, that that's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so and Holden plays the part of Deckard in that scene, 
Um, and as you explain well in your interview, but I, I know you probably weren't going to touch on this particular detail, but um, Morgan Paul kind of often was in competition with Harrison Ford in films or one of them would get a part and one of them, and they were, you know, similar looking, but he really could do his voice really well. And uh, I looked it up. If you go look at the original um, trailer for Blade Runner, it's on YouTube and you hear Harrison Ford doing the voiceover it's actually not harrison ford it's morgan paul and he and it's you really only can tell if someone tells you then you listen to it a little bit more closely and you're like okay yeah it does sound slightly different but i mean he's spot on and so that's part that was part of and he had a relationship with harrison ford and knew him and you know they'd interact in a lot of films but anyways continue your story that it 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 was amazing i didn't really realize it until of course i talked to morgan and then he says, yeah, listen, listen to that. And that's, that's all me. I did, I did all the, for the, the promos and stuff. I, I did all of those. And I went, oh, that was Harrison. He goes, yeah. And so I go, no, that was me. So yeah, when you, when you listen really closely. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a buzz love. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. So to get back to the... Uh, so he did the screen test with some of the other actors and, and right. some of the ones that made oh, it. Oh, yes. So um, he was I guess supposedly friendly with Ridley and Ridley liked what he was doing. So Ridley put him in the put him in the movie as a character, Dave Holden. And so that's how that's how he got in. And um Ridley just kept wanting him around. I don't I don't know why, but he would have him do this and that during the entire shoot so he wasn't just there for a few minutes he was he was in and out of the you know the, the set and stuff right. all the time so do you and, and then about? yeah and then how how did you get in contact with uh with morgan paul and then tell us a story about okay. kind of your drive up to interview <laughs> all right so as i said previously my little niche was going to be trying to find all these piece, people that were either cast or crew and who I could interview so that we could we could use it as material for for Blade Zone. That was my my reasoning. So talking to talking to everybody, this sounds horrible, but everybody said Morgan Paul is dead. So you're never going to be able to reach out to him. Well, I couldn't find evidence that Morgan Paul was dead. So, <clears throat> I didn't really, I don't know if at this time, I think I had a computer, but I, you know, typed in Morgan Paul and it didn't really come up with anything, especially his, his address or telephone number or anything. So actually I looked, I called uh, 411 information on a landline and I said would you do me a great great favor would you look up the name Morgan Paul 
and just one moment please and then in a in a few minutes this woman came back and she said well we do have a morgan paul that lives in lake arrowhead and so i thought well that's that's it so i wrote wrote down the phone number and i was i i called him a few days later i was so nervous i couldn't believe it because this is going to be the first actor i ever saw or ever talked to in my entire life so i was so nervous talking so i called him up and and he didn't realize that no one knew who where he was because lake arrowhead is way 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 up into the mountains he said an hour north of riverside yeah it's, yeah, like, 7, it's like rivers feet yeah way feet. up in the riverside so you drive to riverside then that's only about halfway to where you so i'm not used to of course mountains so i'm used to every turn this can't be you just keep on and on and on so i get to his condo you know it's funny just for to tell you what was going through my head after you told me the story and then i read your interview when you're talking about the drive, I was like, you know, this sounds a lot like the happy ending sort of shining outtakes. And, and then the, the scenes you see of Deckard Spinner when, when the helicopter pulls away and you see the long shots of him going up a winding mountain. So when I was reading your interview, I was sort of picturing you in that scenario. It, it was nutty. I, you know, people live, everybody likes Lake Arrowhead, but I couldn't, I couldn't deal. I couldn't deal with it. So in the mountain road with the, for me a little scary because I'm not used to doing that kind of stuff. So I wait outside in the car for a while to build up my, you know, you're meeting an actor that you've been watching on a VHS tape or you saw in a movie. What's it going to be like? And uh, knock on the door and he comes to the door. Just the most pleasant, just like, of course, like a normal like a normal guy, like not like an actor or anything at all. So he invites me in and I have a little, you know, like a cassette recorder. And that's how I got that interview on that little tape recorder that I had. But he has such adventures. He has such adventures. It's just incredible. Plus, but, you know, of course, I could have interviewed him about Patton as well. But um, that's that's how I met Morgan, and he lived up there for about another year, I suppose. And then he called me, because he used to call me like once a week, and uh, he said he was moving to Marina del Rey, which is about twenty minutes from where we're sitting right right now, Marina del Rey. So. He had said, oh, I have a boat. So I'm envisioning a yacht, right? <laughs> I'm envisioning a yacht. He takes me to see his, not to demean Morgan in any way, <laughs> but he takes me to see his boat. And it's a little longer than a rowboat. I don't know what the deal was, but he wanted, to, he wanted a place, a mooring for his boat. So that's why he was in Marina Del Rey. So... About, yeah, and you guys, you know, became friends. You yes, talked on the regular. It's it's really it's really funny because for some unknown reason to me, he liked me. So we would go to breakfast about every two weeks on a Saturday, 
he would just say, Gary, Morgan. And that's how he started every conversation. <laughs> and I would just start laughing because his voice is kind of rich. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like Harrison Ford's voice, but oh, yeah. it's, it's very, it's very, you know, like I said, kind of rich. And was he, he's a little bit older than you, younger than you? He was like, almost exactly one year younger than me. He, I was, and not that it matters, but so we were almost like kindred spirits because we were, we were the same age. So he would tell me stories about uh, John Wayne that I can't remember right now, but it seemed like he was on the ends with the director that always did John Wayne films. So every time there was a John Wayne film, someplace in the background or a gang or something, Morgan was in that particular movie. So, so we would go to breakfast and, uh, you know, it was, it was really, really nice. I got to meet his daughters, his two daughters, and one was a comedian at the time, and I think she lives in Spain now. Wouldn't that be wonderful to live in, live in Spain? And you were telling me, it's, it was really heartwarming. You told me that uh, in 2012, the day after he passed. Morgan had been calling me all this time, but he had never intimated that he was, he was ill, never. And I think that that's kind of cool that you don't, you know, you don't want sympathy calls and you don't, oh, how are you doing kind of thing. So after Morgan passed, I hadn't heard from him and I, didn't know anything about any that he was even ill. And so Jenny Elam, I get a phone call. He had he had moved up north and he had married um, Jack Elam's um, wife, widow. Jack Elam passed away. Um, and uh, so I get a call from uh, Jenny Elam Morgan, I mean Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, and she said, you're the first person to call that, that Morgan has, has passed away. So I thought that was kind of nice that she, before anybody else, she said, you're such good friends with Morgan and he talks about you all the time that I would call you, I would call you first. Yeah, it certainly says a lot about your relationship. That's pretty incredible. Um, just... Real quick, uh, because again, we'll put links in it. Who else over the years have you interviewed that you remember being particularly uh, interesting or that you were surprised you could get? Or It's really hard for me to remember because there was so many people that I've touched, touched base um, with. Of course, over the years too, I've uh, had a, uh, a friendship with uh, Joanna uh, Cassidy. Um, I'm trying to remember all of the, the people that I have. Yeah, it's all right. If they, if they come up, you can yeah. pop in and mention it. But, yeah. um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you that, again, it's like you sit down with Paul Salmon and, and he was very kind when we interviewed him. You know, Paul Paul certainly can, he's he's got such a rich history and, and has so much, such a wealth of information. You know, we did a 
three hour interview with him. And so eventually it's just like you run out of time and feel bad holding him up, but there's certainly more you could talk about. And one thing that I don't remember getting to talk to him a lot about, even though I know he was there was the, um, night at the Bradbury party, uh, in, I'm assuming that was 2007, the year that they released the uh, special edition. And so for those who aren't acquainted, although you can find plenty of pictures of this online, um, the, I guess the, you could tell me better than I know, but you know, the production, uh, rented out the entire Bradbury building. Warner, Warner Brothers Warner Brothers did, did it and they brought in neon lights and the mannequins and invited everyone from the production and did a party. I'm assuming for the release of the special edition, I, I, we would, the fans would love to hear more about that event. Cause we all the, wish we uh, could have been there. The, there was a screening, a private screening, um, for the uh, final cut, there was a premiere where all the actors, cast and crew came. And uh, Brian Ebenhock again and I were invited to go to the final cut premiere and uh, watch the, the final cut. So you two somehow just became like <laughs> the know. fan representatives, the two most famous know. fans, and we, we just kept getting invited everywhere. That's yeah. Amazing. We he he knows more about the spinner than probably anybody in the in the world. So that's kind of how he and I got linked up. I saw him in a photograph in a photograph on the internet, standing next to a kind of a trashed spinner in Florida. And so I wanted to try to contact him and stuff. And so that's how we kind of got uh, a friend friended. So I can't remember again how, how we got an invite to that. But nonetheless, you uh, none, <laughs> nevertheless, as you said, Dan, we got invited to the premiere. We walked the little red carpet. I introduced Gene Winfield was there, and he wanted to meet, meet the snake lady. And I, I knew Joanna, and so I introduced uh, Gene to the snake lady. And uh, I took some photos. And then after we watched the, uh, Brian and I watched the uh, final cut. I don't think um, Brian had seen the final cut. Here again. I don't know why I was invited to Warner Brothers for a very special cast only, um, but that I was there with a lot of the cast, the cast at Warner Brothers, seeing <clears throat> seeing for the first time the final cut. So I had seen I had seen the final cut because I was at Warner Brothers, and then um, an assistant showed me the New York set. So we walked around oh, cool. the New York set and it was, that was pretty cool. Was, uh, was Ridley Scott at this event? I don't, I don't believe, I don't yeah, believe so. That's crazy. He's so he's probably busy filming. He's always movie. busy doing films. So to make long story short, please do Gary. Um, <laughs> we then had to find the Bradbury and I, I couldn't remember the address or where it was. So, it just seemed like hours we were driving around. And of course, the Bradbury doesn't look anything like the Blade Runner Bradbury. So driving up and down downtown trying to find 
because we were invited to the after party with, with all the cast and crew. And uh, so we finally found the parking lot. We were probably about a half an hour late getting in there. Then the door fellow didn't know who we were, the guy on the door, so he wouldn't let us in. So we said, go talk to Charles and tell him that Gary and Brian are here. So then I <laughs> forgot my poster. I had bought a final cut poster that I wanted everybody to sign like a little fanboy. I ran back to the car. So in the meantime, Brian gets in. They come to the door and Brian is there. So Brian gets in. So now I'm outside, outside the door again and they won't let me in again. So finally I get in. And as I'm leaving, sadly, because I'm now probably 45 minutes late, um, William Sanderson and his wife Sharon are coming down the stairway from the second floor where the big party is. It's not on the first floor. The first floor is neon and mannequins and light. You live in this building all by yourself? Yeah, I live here pretty much alone right now. No housing shortage around here. Plenty of room for everybody. So they're coming down, and of course, uh, William knows me from all the autograph shows that I s would sit with them. And it was kind of hilarious because I would sit with William and Joanna, and uh, and Joe uh, Turkel, and they would come up and they would look at me and they <laughs> wonder probably who. Who is this guy? Who? What? What part did he play in Blade Brunner that I I don't know? So anyway, so I knew uh, William and uh, Sharon, so they said they had they had to leave. So they had already been there probably an hour. So you get up to the second floor, and it's like stepping back into the film. There is two full bars, and there's probably. 50 feet of sushi and any kind of food that you can imagine in the world. There's neon everywhere. I don't know where they got all the neon. There's mannequins everywhere. There's smoke machines. And you're just going, oh my God. So I went over to Charlie and I said, can I stay, can I just stay here for, <laughs> forever? <laughs> so I asked permission to go up to the other floors. They were roped off, so no one could get no one could get up there. And they go, yeah. What will they do? What will they? What do they do? So they. So I said. So I have your permission to go up to the other floors. So I had. Uh, I had purchased a little small Sony camera just for the after party, so I didn't have a gigantic, you know camera around my neck so I just started I spent the entire time I was there just taking photographs so if the fans go to Blade Runner at the top there's just photos Blade you can Zone click. Oh, I'm sorry 
Blade Zone. Mm -hmm. You go to Blade Zone at the very top of the page is a link to all those photographs of the of the after yeah i've party. seen a bunch of them they're cool and it is and brian brian took some took some photos too so they're they're on there brian eben hawk has some photos but it was just so cool to see everybody to see sid mead and see literally everybody so i went over and i just hung out with the art department because that's the guys that i just you know really look up to you know the art the art department so i just as i said i just hung out over there with them for the rest of the night but it was just and then afterwards when they were closing up i of course i didn't want to leave and they gave us a, a gift bag and stuff and they uh umbrella we got an umbrella and we got we got a keychain and some other stuff they just stuffed stuffed in her bag so that was that was a really that was a cool that was a cool time i'll always remember it that's something that i don't know how you could top yeah we were uh waiting to see some news that you know if it was ever going to happen again something like that it would be this year 2019 but we haven't heard a peep so we'll see we're we're organizing an event there's other you know uh replicon and other people organizing events uh for for the year so we'll see what happens but you know whether the studios do something again or not, the fans will be getting together and screening this film. And you know, it's a it's an important year for Blade Runner fans. So we're all I, yeah, I think I think Charles had a lot to do with it. Charlie had a lot to do with it. I think yeah, too. Sure. He probably pushed pushed for something. But you know, Warner Brothers wouldn't have done something unless they thought that it was going to amount to something. You know, the the suitcase came out with the the DVDs and it included a little, little chrome or silver spinner and stuff. So they were probably wanting that as a kickoff too for the, for the uh, DVD. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. That was a big deal as well. Cool. Well, you know, let's, let's just take another, uh, just a little bit Gary, but I think we can wrap, you know, I don't want to hold you up all day, but, um, you know, starting in, 2017 the kind of the universe opened up the Blade Runner universe opened up so of course Blade Runner 2049 was you know advertised and marketed and released um now we've got a comic book series coming out we've got an anime series coming out and those things are going to continue for several years uh most likely and so we're we're really looking forward to doing a lot of episodes of that on the pod but I wanted to kind of ask you, um, yeah, let's let's talk about 2049 for a second. Your your kind of first impressions and what you thought in general. And well, I don't know if I can be. You can be honest, serious, okay. yeah, serious and honest. Of course you can. It'll probably be a shock to everybody that hasn't seen my Facebook from time to time, but um, it had so. Uh, I just call it. Uh, 2049 um it it had so many flaws in it that i it was just hard to hard to follow and you know the the character k i couldn't figure out why he was doing what he was doing why he was doing it the whole premise of the film was that if a replicant gives birth to a child, 
that it would change the whole world. And I didn't buy into it. I couldn't buy into the characters. With Blade Runner, the first original Blade Runner, you know, the, the premise there was that Deckard had to retire these four replicants that they were a real a real prob with a real problem but with the premise of 2049 it was finding this child and so I, I just didn't buy into it there was maybe six people in the theater when I went which we are uh, I always found appropriate because I was like, of course, it's Blade Runner. Like, why yeah. would it? Why would it why get? Would you, why, yeah. why would everybody go? Why would every anybody know what this is about? Why would it have a great reception? <laughs> they probably there was actually one person that had a Tyrell. It was a girl. Mm -hmm. She had a Tyrell Corporation T-shirt on. Right. But everybody else, I think they were just uh, wondering what this. Was all, was all about. As I said, there's maybe six people other than me. Um, about halfway through, people were starting to just talk <laughs> because I guess it was just that, it, that maybe the film just wasn't keeping their attention. So as we were talking about earlier, Dan, we're talking about pacing. For some reason, the it just seemed like the pacing was off it really didn't keep you on the edge of on the edge of your your seat the whole time um Interesting. i didn't want to i didn't want to laugh at some of the scenes but some of the scenes that were were a little a little humorous that weren't supposed to be humorous when um yeah give us an example um when ryan AKA K had a fight at almost the very beginning of the film with that I don't remember the actors the actor's name that really large fellow oh, that um, was well that was definitely a fight um, yeah of course uh, uh, Bautista yeah Bautista right I didn't I didn't see how Ryan Gosling could overtake a person that was a, like. 280 80 pounds even now. Because he was a Nexus 9 and they were oh. much stronger. <laughs> was was that fellow supposed to be a replicant as he well? He was a Nexus 8. So he was an inferior oh, model. He was only an 8. So, But he seemed like a really nice guy. He was like in there doing... Sure, what was, was the reason... Here again. What was the reason that he was doing that? What? Why did he want to take capture that fellow or kill that that I, I didn't get that well because uh nexus eights didn't obey the way the nines did and they would run off and do things they weren't supposed to and oh. sapper morton the character was a combat model he was a oh. he was a medic and a combat model oh, that had fought in the fields of calantha because i i just didn't follow why he was why he was why he was doing that yeah that's all right and and you know this series we're doing is not specifically on 2049 so i don't want to like get too deep into the plot um but i want to hit a couple of more things um and i just wanted to say first of all i'm 
happy to hear divergent opinions. We talk about it all the time on the podcast. I will tell you, uh, just factually from interacting with the fans that surprisingly, because I don't think we would have expected this. I would say that 2049 is probably beloved by a good, like, 75 to 80% of Blade Runner fans. I and, I agree. And that's an incredible feat, I think, yeah. uh, compared to the reception the original Blade Runner got and compared to how things could have gone. And, you know, and we have tons of interviews and episodes that you can listen to where we break a lot of this down and, and talk to some of the actors and people involved in the production. And um, what we thought was really incredible, and, and I do want to ask you a question about design and art since that's your field, but what we thought was incredible is that... Uh, Denis Villeneuve, the director, sat down with Gosling and with Harrison Ford, and I can't remember if there was a a fourth person there, but essentially, you know, basically everyone that worked on the film was an original Blade Runner fan, except for maybe Harrison Ford. But (laughs) all the younger people certainly grew up with the original film. And so he sat them down, and, and again, we've talked about this in other episodes, but he said, you know, what we're trying to do here is follow a masterpiece. This is going to be very difficult. The chances of success are very low, but I think that if we put our heart and soul into it and work really hard and, and just do it for the passion, you know, we have a chance of making something special here, but don't, you know, just do your job well and work hard with passion. And then whatever comes out of it comes out of it, but don't be disappointed if it doesn't get the reception you're expecting, because it's kind of like, I mean, for one it's Blade Runner, which again is infamous for having a bad sort of uh, reception uh, from the audience. But two, again, it's like, how does lightning strike twice? How do you end up making this? uh, How do you follow up this seminal masterpiece? So one thing that I think the fans that do really love the movie um, and they really appreciate is the effort that was put into it. And you can see that when you learn more, you know, you listen to these interviews and learn more about the detail, the approach that they took was very deep. And of course, Fancher and, and Michael Green wrote the script. That whole scene with Sapper Morton is, was written for the original Blade Runner initially. And it was, you know, there's Ridley Grahams and you can see that in documentaries. So, um, I do. And of course, like I respect your opinion and you know, just like the original film isn't for everyone. Um, but I would suspect that if you were to kind of listen to not just our podcast, but there's other film podcasts that have done episodes on 2049. And I think if you read a little bit more about it and learn more about it and watch it a few more times, um, I'm not saying that it'll become your favorite movie in the world, but I think that you will learn to appreciate things that maybe you didn't appreciate in previous yes. viewings. I mean, uh, I'm assuming you, you've seen it, you know. No, I've only seen it once okay. in the theater. Well, I would certainly say that no matter what your final opinion is going to be, it's a movie that deserves multiple viewings because certainly in visual richness, there's a ton there and, you know, Ridley Scott produced as well. And so he had a lot of input and, you know, he handpicked Villeneuve. He basically said, I'm going to be busy with Covenant. I can't direct it. Or, Yeah. I think that was the story. Okay. I might be getting confused. No, cause Covenant came out. No. Yeah. He was working on Covenant. He, but basically Ridley had to give up directing. And so he handed the project to Villeneuve and said, I think, you know, you can do a great job with this. And so definitely there's a lot of passion there, but speaking of which to end on a positive note about 2049, cause I would imagine that you saw some things that you liked. I wanted to ask you, um, is there, is there stuff, I mean, in general, what did you like about the film? And then secondarily, um, cause I'm assuming it has to do with visuals or some of it. Well, what did you think of the art? direction and the visuals and the effects and all that well it was what what was it was interesting too is 
I don't know if I'm getting this confused with the, the videos that came out at the same time. Oh, the shorts. The shorts that right, came which out spanned the same time. in between the two films. They were right. they were 2022, oh man, 2038 and 2048. I was believe. the stairway, the large stairway where the the uh, kind of alien creatures that were in the glass cases was that that's in the film. That was, mm-hmm. that was in the film. So those, that those, kind of tied into to other, you know, other things, right? Yeah, those were the previous um, generations, previous I Nexus agree. generations. I think I they were agree. even labeled, and and I think the big one that you probably get to see the best shot of, mm-hmm. I believe, was generally modeled after Dave Bautista, kind of in size, oh, so it's supposed see. to represent kind of his model. I Some see. people have mentioned how it looks a lot like the engineer from right. um, from Prometheus, which I think there's some similarity yes. there. Again, that's what I I kind of I yeah. kind of thought. Let's not forget that 2049 was put up for I believe it was put up for three Academy Awards and one visual effects, which of course there was several different teams working on different scenes and different visual effects. But I think more importantly, uh, Roger Deakins won the Oscar for cinematography. And that's pretty rare for a science fiction film. And Roger Deakins, if you look at his history, you know, he's been on that stage 20 plus times as part as the cinematographer on crew for a bunch of Coen Brothers movies. You know, he did, um, I think he did No Country for Old Men and, and yeah, yeah. And, um, again, I'm not going to go through the list. People can look it up on IMDb, but he did a bunch of Coen Brothers movies most famously. And, um, that was the first time in, I can't remember if it was like 24 or 30 nominations where he finally won Best Cinematography. And so that says a lot, I think. And I think if you look at the lighting of the film, again, once is definitely not enough. You're going to have to watch this film again. And I'd love to talk about it again. I will will definitely uh, watch it again to see uh, if I have any other feelings about it. Your models are happy scraping the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. As you said, the people that that I've talked to, every, well, of course, everybody under 50 is young to me, but everybody in their 30s and their 20s, I've talked to maybe 10 people. They, they all love 2049 and they didn't see why I didn't I didn't like it well I'll tell you what but they had they had never seen the original well some people haven't which is interesting because now you have groups of people who are watching 2049 and then going back and watching the original not to mention three dozen films in between them that capture sort of you can just tell are so influenced by Blade Runner and a lot of people don't even know what the source of that influence is you know which is which is crazy what you've been involved in fandom for so long. I mean, honestly, if you had to have a business card and I was making it for you, I might say like uh, Blade Runner fandom ambassador, you know, because that's, that seems to be the, the sort of the position that you've taken up for better or for worse and whether you wanted it or not. Um, and so I wanted to kind of end with what's, what have you seen change now that and again i think this conversation will be interesting in the next couple of years too as these comics come out and the anime comes out the universe is expanding and the fans are 
rightfully so kind of apprehensive because we're like, don't ruin this beautiful thing, which again, most people feel that the sequel didn't ruin anything or that it was good. And now we're kind of like seeing Patrick just did an interview with the uh, creative director of the Titan comic that's coming out. And we had a great feeling about that interview because he is crazy Blade Runner fan. You know, he, he, uh, well, I don't want to give anything away because that interview hasn't come out yet, but it's a great interview and, and folks will listen to it. But you can tell that that series is in the right hands. And that's set in 2019 with new characters and it'll kind of allude, you know, to the original. But, um, and so my point is, of course, I'm being long winded. As time goes on, you're getting these new generations back into the world of Blade Runner through maybe through 2049 or through the comics, but inevitably they're going back and watching the masterpiece and watching the original. And, um, you know, I wasn't around in, 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 in the 70s and 80s and in that earlier era, but to me, it's really heartwarming because I'm like, oh man, look at this. You know, it, not that it'll ever really be mainstream. It'll always be kind of a niche, but it's to me, it's a really positive thing that we're seeing these new generations of kids getting into Blade Runner and digging deeper into the philosophy and seeing what it's about. What, what's your perspective on that? Because you've been around fandom for so long and, uh, and you know so much about it. I'd like to close with that and see kind of how you feel about that. I think it's just a, a positive thing. Between, between several years after Blade Runner came out until... I don't know, maybe about two or three years ago. There was not that much interest. And so Paul Salmon wrote in in his book, I had him sign, you're kind of keep the keeper of the flame. So I've been trying all these years along with some of the actors to try to keep interest up. And so anytime there's more interest in Blade Runner, of course. It's just it's just positive, whether it's 2049, or the anime, or the or the cartoon books. I'm really looking forward to anime because I can see that there could be a whole series of anime shorts or anime. You know, the podcast like Shoulders of Orion. All of that, all of that is going to help keep. Blade Runner in everybody's mind. Like I said, you know, I think uh, uh, I don't want to talk ourselves up, certainly, but if you're if you're like the ambassador of fans, I think that we constantly try and remind ourselves when we're in a situation where, in this case, I'm representing the entire podcast, even though there's three of us. But oftentimes, you know, we're kind of representing fandom, and so we try and take that really seriously, and we try and. Um, you know, interact online, Facebook and all those groups help. Uh, you know, if you're not on our group fields of Calantha, I'd invite you to join. It's where we can, fans can have discussions about whatever they want related to the films. And um, yeah, I think it's really important to remember that there's this, you know, big group of fans that it, it might not be Star Wars and it might not be uh, the, the alien universe, but it's a, it's a very, very passionate group of people just like us that um, really want to, talk about what's important about these films and, and kind of what what they're leaving in, in history after we're gone, you know, and my dad introduced me to the film and uh, and and you you got to go to the, the first screening, which is, or the, the first viewing in theaters, which is great, so um, yeah, we're looking forward to talking about this for years. Well, I was really impressed listening to the uh, Joanna Cassidy interview of the um the background you knew, the research it seemed like you you put in 
I've listened to podcasts where it was just like all over the place, but you seem to be very focused and thanks Gary. That's a, that's a big compliment coming from you. We appreciate it. It, it was, yeah, it was very enjoyable. I listened to every second of that. Of well, that well like I said, I've got, I've got other episodes and other shows I could recommend to you. There, there's lots out there. It just I takes look time forward to, to listening to those. Cool. Well, I, you know, I'd really like to extend uh, our thanks from, from shoulder of Orion and from the rest of the fans for sitting Thank down you. with us today, for inviting me to your house. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can get your permission to take a couple of uh, photos of your collection and see sure. if we can show it off because I think people will enjoy that. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again. All for right. Well, thank show. you so much. Dan. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.